Hello and welcome to the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I'm your host, Olivia Cummings, founder of the jewellery brand Cleopatra's Bling. In season two of the Cleopatra's Bling podcast, we continue to meet the creatives and craftspeople who inspire our artisanal jewellery collections. Last season, we met with a beekeeper poet, a wild woman dancer and a mermaid historian. This season, we begin a new series of journeys recorded from my home in Melbourne. Wherever you're listening from, this podcast invites you into those intimate conversations which bring tradition and practices from the past into the present. Our guest today is someone, like me, who says she dreams endlessly about food. She teaches cooking classes, blogs, and throws a whole lot of dinner parties. Having moved to rural Italy with her partner, she met in Puglia several years ago, she is now the owner of a renovated cooking studio in Altamura and a home in Oria. Ever in search of beauty and abundance, the pair also acquired a parcel of land on which to grow olives, pears, figs, pomegranates and almonds. From these three Italian locales, they share their love of traditional food culture. I really like it because it very much encapsulates or encompasses that idea that, you know, you can make pasta with flour and water. So it's hard wheat, durum wheat, semola, flour and water. You don't need a machine. You know, if you have a knife and you have a board, you can do it. Julie was born in Vancouver, Canada, but met her partner Francesco on a trip to Italy in 2014. The two share a passion for regional Italian cooking and a vision of a series of second homes that would encompass everything that they love about food, fresh local produce, a respect for tradition, and the stories shared around the dinner table. Together, they founded Eat, or Everyone at the Table, and haven't looked back. Julie shared what it is like to undertake an amazing adventure like this with her partner, some of the best tales revealed over shared food, and the incredible variety encompassed within the broad umbrella of Italian cuisine. Who gave you your passion for cooking? Was it a self-taught passion or? Yeah, and I did come to cooking a little bit later. I didn't cook a thing until I was 25. Mm-hmm. Like ramen noodles out of that bag, like the bad ramen noodles out of the bag, <laughs> you know, the not now cool ramen noodles, but like literally like chiban noodles. And my mom was actually, she was a really, really good cook, but she was a very like nervous cook. It always had to be perfect. The dinner party was a 25 step process and you started days in advance. And looking at that growing up, it it never felt like cooking was a joyful thing. It felt Mm. like it was a job or a chore. And so I I studied English literature um, at university and I didn't cook anything. And and then one day I was working an office job while going to school and, and a cookbook came across the desk because uh, I was working for a, a music producer and another music producer, a guy named Bob Bloomer. I don't even know where Bob Bloomer is now, but he had written this cookbook probably back in the 90s or early 2000s that was called The Surreal Gourmet. And it was just so infused with like you know, there was music to cook by. These recipes were doable. It, it made it seem like it was possible and fun. Yeah. And so 
I started cooking and then kind of, it just sort of snowballed. Then I took some, you know, weekend classes at a local cooking school and then the week-long classes. So, I mean, I don't know that I would say, you know, my mom also influenced me because while she did it so well, it was lacking this joy. And when I kind of was able to come back at, at an older age and put it all together, I could understand, you know, both her perspective as a mom yeah. who was putting food on the table every day and she was a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, when my dad wanted his business associates to come, it had to be this thing. From that to going to this music to cook by and all of these recipes and adventure club recipes, I kind of found that middle ground. Mm. And I soon realized, like, it wasn't even necessarily, it was certainly not the perfection of a dish. Yeah. It was what you got when you put the imperfect dish down in the middle of a dining table and let people talk and, you know, pour wine and share stories and eat. As much as I love food, it's really half the time, it's n never really about the food. It's about the collective experience and what everyone's going to bring mm. to that. I've had some amazing meals that are so overwrought and so overthought and so perfect, you know, and that's not, those are not my favorite meals. Yeah, because the, the emotion feels contrived in a way. Contrived. Yeah, yeah. And it's all of that imperfection. And I, you know, with my mom just passing, you know, and she loved the way we cooked. She loved coming to Italy and she loved seeing a long table dinner mm. with, you know, food that was, yeah, maybe a little bit done, sometimes done at the last minute, super simple, but not a meal made to showcase the food, a meal that showcased everything else. And yeah. she... She did sort of come to really love that. So that's special to me now. That's great. I mean, it sort of probably healed that in a way, like her relationship to food maybe, <clears throat> you know, like often we can show mm -hmm. our parents sort of, you know, a different way as well because it's a different generation. Mm -hmm. You know, she wouldn't have yeah. had that opportunity probably to travel to Italy and, you know, experience yeah. that. So she's yeah. she's lucky. Yeah. So what was the biggest challenge when starting Everyone at the Table? Everyone at the Table kind of grew out of a really interesting and kind of intense time in my life. So I had another company called Kitchen Culinaire. And my background in cooking is French. So I'd mm -hmm. gone to a French cooking school. I worked at a very high-end French restaurant here in Vancouver. And then for a number of years, we took uh, workshop groups from primarily like Canada, sometimes North America, but to France. We'd go to Paris and we would do these two-week you know, run around Paris, eat at all the great bistros, get an apartment that we could cook at. We did, you know, hands-on cooking, but it was this sort of French-based uh, cooking experience. And so Kitchen Culinary, I had a, I had a business partner, Sharolta uh, Doby, that we worked together doing that as well as doing cooking classes in Vancouver. And through a weird chance-like experience, I have a friend who has a store in Vancouver and she was carrying this olive oil by this guy from Puglia, who also mm. happens to live part-time in Vancouver. And he would take a volunteer with him every year to work on one of his workshops. He did a culinary and shepherding workshop. They did fresco restoration. They did something called the Fornello Project and their company name is Messors. And she was supposed to go and she couldn't go. And she was like, you, you need to go. You need to meet this guy. Like, you are gonna love this and you should go and work for this person. I did, and at that point in time, everything sort of started to fall apart. So the idea of 
everyone at the table being born while kitchen culinaire was kind of going away. Yeah, um, wow. And so I'd say the biggest challenge was like, yeah, you know, uh, I met Francesco in a very sweet, sweet way. And we kind of met and immediately fell in love. Oh, that's Truly lovely. a love at first sight, even though I was married for 17 years and he was in a 10-year relationship. So that was a bit tricky. Um, Sounds uh, tricky. That's, that's, that's a <laughs> subject for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That one's a good one. That might be my story that I actually write. I might write a book about that because that's a pretty good story. <laughs> it was kind of leaving a lot of stuff behind. So everyone at the table was sort of formed out of a lot of loss of other things. And that mm. was probably the most difficult part for me. But it was transformative. It was transitional. It was, yeah, just having to leave a lot behind to make it happen. Yeah. Wow. It's very poetic. (laughs) So you obviously work closely with Francesco. Can you tell us the story of how you met? I'm really curious now. It was 2014. Rolti and I, Charlotte and I were doing this workshop in uh, France and I had agreed to be the volunteer, and I was to arrive in Puglia on July 1st, which is Canada Day, actually. So July 1st, 2014. And before I went, I just, I was so tired. The The workshop that we'd done in France was pretty grueling, and I was really exhausted, and I kind of just wanted to go home. Yeah. Because I was going off on my own. I didn't have, you know, my best girlfriend, my mom, my, you know, husband, my, you know, sweet son. I was literally going off to do this workshop and volunteer by myself for the first time. 44 years old. First time I'd really been out on my own. Arrive in Puglia and Tonio, who was supposed to pick me up for a number of different reasons, could not pick me up. So he was like, you know, just, you're in Bari, just get, go out, find the bus. It doesn't stop in our town, but just tell them you want to, they'll just... Sounds really, and they'll let you out. Sounds very Italian, and (laughs) just ask to get off the bus in Italian. Just just tell them, yeah, and you don't speak the language. I had a suitcase that was literally the size of my body with all of my cooking gear from this other workshop. So I'm dragging around this ginormous suitcase. I'm so proud of myself. I find the right bus. I say to the guy in terrible Italian, like you know, uh, vorrei andare questo posto al tomorrow. He's like. Yeah, get on the bus <laughs> and your suitcase is way too heavy, but we'll get that on for you too. <laughs> um, so 45 minutes and then pull off. And, you know, I thought we'd be going to a bus station as, as you would think if you were on the bus and going to a, he literally pulls off the highway and kind of points at me and says like, you get out. And he drags off my suitcase and it's, you know, 40 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Wow. It's 2.45 in the afternoon. So everyone is at lunch or sleeping. And there's the shade of one tree and I'm standing there and no one is coming to pick me up. There's no one coming to meet me. I don't have data on my phone. This is like, you know, seven years ago. So I'm literally sitting under the shade of this tree on this massive suitcase, getting a bit teary. And I'm sitting there for like an hour and a half and I can't figure out where I'm supposed to be going. I keep calling the numbers of, you know, Tonio, who's supposed to pick me up nowhere to be seen. Finally, this car comes down the road. No one else is around. It slows down in front of the tree because it's, it's a weird vision here. There's some obvious like stranieri, right? Like I'm obviously not from there. I obviously have the suitcase. I obviously don't know what I'm doing. I'm sitting on a suitcase. This car slows down and this beautiful, sweet man gets out and he doesn't really speak English, but he says, you know, are you Julia? 
And I, you know, I'm like trying not to like tear up. I'm kind of wiping away the tears like, and, uh, and it was Francesco. And he said, you know, Tonio has sent me, but he sent me to the wrong place. And I was waiting there and I literally was just going back to the Masseria. And you look so odd sitting out here. Um, and I was like, like, yeah, it's pretty odd. (laughs) And we met and that first day he drove me back to the Masseria. I was so relieved. And we spoke to each other. We actually spoke to each other in Spanish because I'd been an exchange student in Mexico and he'd lived in Barcelona. He didn't speak English and I didn't speak Italian. And it was kind of, you know, about seven days after that of working together during this workshop that I thought, oh, dear. You're in trouble. There's some big, there's big life changes coming for a 44-year-old woman who's, you know, been married for 17 years. I can see there's something and then it just kind of, you know, the stars just kept aligning and aligning and and now, yeah, we got married and we've been together for 7 years and I can't imagine my life without him. He's the most amazing, sweet, generous, lovely man ever. So, it's good. Wow, that's a really great story. I definitely think that you should write a script. <laughs> Cuz that's an amazing story. That's like better than Eat Pray Love, honestly. <laughs> So obviously you're you're based mostly in Puglia. Yeah. So what have mm-hmm. you found interesting about the regional food? Because I find that Puglia is really sort of upcoming in the last couple of years, similar to Napoli. Yeah. Like no one really knew about Puglia yeah. or Napoli. Right. And then it sort of became yeah. a little bit fashionable, I would say, maybe Napoli less yeah. so. Right. What do you find interesting about the regional dishes in Puglia that maybe people don't really know about? Yeah, and I think I think what you say is really interesting. I think that, you know, everyone's saying like Napoli in the south and Puglia is like the new Tuscany. I don't believe that to be true mm. because I think the Pugliese, like the people from Napoli, they're not really interested in that, right? They're not, they, they don't really want everyone hanging around all the time. They're very direct in what they want. And the, the regional cooking, I think, is also very much that way. Nothing is being changed in terms of regional cuisine. And you would know being in Italy from the north to the south from, and it's not even like region to region, it's town to town. Yeah. So what we, and the only way you can make, you know, one of the regional dishes like orecchiette, Mm -hmm. the only way you can make it is with cime verrape right? You don't make it with a sugo. You don't like, it's good if you do it that way. It's wrong. I mean, it's fine, but it is wrong because the way my mama and my nona make it is the only right way. And I would say with that regional cuisine of Puglia, it's still very much steeped in the idea that, you know, we're not talking about the North. We're not talking about Piemonte. We're not talking about Bologna. We don't have rivers of truffle and butter and cream it's like it's poor and yeah. you know the olive the olive oil reigns supreme and the mm. vegetable reigns supreme and that weekly schedule of what you eat you know like monday is legumes right and tuesday is pasta with a fresh tomato sauce wednesday is legumes again maybe beans maybe lentils you know yeah thursday you might have some white meat friday always always fish right yeah. we're catholics And, you know, if you don't get to that market at eight o'clock, all those other Nona's are there before you and you're not going to get anything. But (laughs) no fish left. It's very traditional still. And it's very, you know, cucina povera, but not in a hipster cool kind of way. Like they're eating seasonally because they have to. It's not. They don't know that there is another way to eat 
that's just the way you eat because right. you're eating in sync with the seasons. Yeah. And what is truly being grown? Yeah. And it's like a privilege in Australia to like eat seasonally and have fresh from mm-hmm. the farmers in a way where, mm-hmm. yeah, after Italy and like Istanbul where you just eat in season because that's the way. The way it's done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your favorite recipe to cook and teach? Is there something you think really encapsulates your home? Yeah, uh, the one dish that we've been teaching a lot, I mean, we teach it during the workshops when we used to do in-person workshops. You know, that was always beautiful. Um, But it's also translated really well into, you know, Zoom classes as well. And that's orchiette. Mm -hmm. Have you ever made orchiette? I have. Okay. Yeah. With the little, with the knife action to... With the knife. Mm -hmm. And you flip, right? So I really like it because it very much encapsulates or encompasses that idea that, you know, you can make pasta with flour and water. So it's hard wheat, durum wheat, semola, flour, and water. It's so accessible, really. It's not... You're not, you don't need a machine. Mm. You know, if you have a knife and you have a board, you can do it. But at the same time, it's quite challenging. Kids are actually the best. Kids will get in there... They don't care if their first, we always say the first 50 are not going to be your best. You need to keep going. So orchette would be the favorite uh, pasta to teach. And also it's very much part of Francesco's culture. And I was taught um, by a beautiful Nona that's still my friend. Her name's Grazia Berloco. And she has made uh, orchette pasta probably five times a week for the past, I don't know, 75 years. So, She's the you know, pro. she she kind of just does it. We do it on the cooking classes with the sugo that is from Francesco's mom. Mm. His mom, Giovanna, she passed away coming up to nine years ago, but he really remembers that dish and that we get to sort of put that together. And it's literally six ingredients, but it's an amazing not just a recipe, it's an amazing technique, it's an amazing history, it's an amazing, yeah, it's a love story from his mom through him to me, and then we get to share it with all these people. It's so beautiful. That's the favorite. I should definitely do one of your Zoom classes. <laughs> so everyone at the table is obviously about bringing people together. I've noticed, even just from your Instagram page, it feels far more than simply food. Mm-hmm. So... I'm assuming it's also about, you know, conversation around the dinner table. And do people really connect and share a lot of their intimate stories, do you find, in these settings? Obviously pre-COVID when you could actually do it in person. Did you find that it was like a beautiful medium for people to connect and make new friends? Yeah, I think, I mean, I I do think people, especially if they have cooked the food that they're eating Mm -hmm. collectively... I think that you can have people that come from all different places in the world, different political affiliations, uh, different religious uh, ideas, gender. You know, we're together for five, six, seven days. Mm. And people are far from home and they are sort of stepping out of whatever it is, is their normal day to day. And I am astounded. And I love this because... 
you know, Francesco, he's good at stuff that I'm not good at. Like he loves to do the airport pickups and he's actually an art restorer by profession and he loves history. He's sort of a historian. I tend to be a little bit more shy. I, I don't love meeting people right off the bat. Like let's have a glass of wine and a little bit of cheese and, you know, we'll kind of meet each other. But by day two, day three, people will tell you anything and everything. Yeah. Like those initial encounters with people that I just, I find such a gift. People at breakfast, I kind of came to realize when I did, and we've done workshops all over Italy. We've worked for a woman in France who has a chateau who's been really influential and helpful for us. And we, when we worked her workshops, I always realized like you always want to do breakfast. Mm. Because breakfast people are so vulnerable, right? And if you pour them a beautiful cup of coffee and you give them something to eat and you just like shut up, like they will tell you everything. They'll tell you about their family. They'll tell you about their health struggles. They'll tell you about their divorce, their children, their, you know, the highest points in their life and their lowest. And that, when you have someone's trust and you're cooking together and eating together, I don't tell any specific stories because those are all those are all sacred, right? Mm. Like if someone tells you something in that moment that is not yours to share, like you really need to be yeah. cognizant that they have really shared something with you. But yeah, no, the stories that we've heard and the people that we've met are that's that's the reason. I mean, that's why you do it. It's like to be able to bring people together. And not only for the people that we meet between, you know, me and that person or Francesco and that person, the friendships that form between the most unlikely people mm. you know at these workshops like people stay friends and they travel halfway around the world to visit each other and they you know share photos and recipes and and yeah I mean it's really amazing it's so beautiful I think that's also really important in what we're going through as a collective at the moment as well because we seem to be so polarized you know through the pandemic and our political views and our privilege so it's really nice mm -hmm. that some, something like that can bring people together and that a Biden supporter can become friends with a Trump supporter. You know, it's like, as well, an example, and yeah. you know. Or, and it's happened, you know. Yeah, I'm Having not surprised. That, sometimes you wouldn't know. You didn't always know those people until kind of after and you'd look up their stuff on Facebook and you'd be like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but before, and this is a bit of a shift for me, before I would always sort of ask people, you know, when we'd have the you know, the meet and greet when we first met, you know, to try to just let some of your political views or your religious views, you know, go. But I, I just, dis I disagree with that now. I think it's not my place. Like the next workshop we do, let it, let it roll people. Like you've got stuff to say, Who, mm. whatever side of that fence you're on. We live in a world, right? And if you feel really strongly about something, then here's a community. If you feel the need to say it and someone feels the need to answer and we're going to have our actual conversation 10,000 kilometers away from where we, you know, usually be having this conversation, I think it's actually important. I think it serves, I think it serves community, you know, yeah. and wherever that community is coming from and wherever they're going. Healthy you know, it's not a vacation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like about learning about doing conflict well rather than just mm -hmm. it blowing up and then writing that person off because they have a different perspective. Yeah, I think yeah. that's really important. I've noticed that in Australia, people don't really talk about politics. Whereas in Turkey, I would sit down, you know, at the Men in the Grand Bazaar where I learned how to make jewellery and they would have full heated arguments. Mm -hmm. And then five minutes later, they'd be like, do you want a kebab? <laughs> <laughs> 
And yeah, I was like, no, wow. I agree. Like, they're not holding you, a grudge. You fight it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, like, the, the voices get high and people are passionate and... But yeah, it's not it's not a do or die. And it's not no. like I write you off as a person because you don't share my political, my religious, mm. my, you know, my lifestyle views. Like, I think that's amazing. And I have, I mean, it's hard for me because I get nervous. Like, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll be around the table even in Italy and the lunch conversation starts happening and my Italian isn't great. Plus there's the whole dialect thing that gets woven through. So sometimes I'm just like, oh man, like what's going on? But yeah, yeah, and as you say, like then 10 minutes later, everyone's drinking limoncello together and no yeah. one seems concerned. And you're just like, well, this is healthy and yeah. good and I think we can learn a lot from that. I found it refreshing. Also, in the beginning, I was like, are we still arguing? I was just like, no, no, mm-hmm. everyone's over Are people it. mad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, oh, nobody cares anymore. Yeah, no one cares. Like, they're over it. Mm-hmm. So you have a very large olive grove and you have pomegranates and figs, which I find really inspiring and um, I would love mm-hmm. to have that in my in my garden mm-hmm. so can you talk a little bit about you know how you planned that out and the challenges of growing your own produce to be fair we have a small olive grove we have oh, 35 small. trees I mean, so it's teeny is- teeny 600 is a large olive grove <laughs> 600 okay the whole way that that unfolded when I first started looking at property Francesco and I weren't even really together I mean I think love was in the air and I had this idea of, and maybe I was just like trying to not think about what was imploding here. And it was, you know, fun to get online and look at properties in Puglia. And initially I'd found a place that was more of a masseria, like more of a working farmhouse. And it was lovely. And it was in the small town, a town that actually Francesco had never even been to. And so we, we were looking at that town and I spent the next year going back and forth on a price with the owners of a this year. masseria. Yeah, and, and finally, I think it was more like a year and five or six months, so like a year and a half. <laughs> so finally, they'd, they'd lobbed out their price, and I finally just said like, okay, yes, you know, I will do it. And then they said, oh, you know, it's not really for sale because our dad hasn't died yet. <laughs> it's just like, whoa, everybody. So this, this dream kind of went up in smoke, and there might have been a tear or two about that. But as is always the case, then we, I started looking again and I found an apartment in the same town. And I just thought like for the same price, I can get an apartment in town and I can get this little piece of land with the 35 trees and the pomegranates and the, you know, and we can have this little Lamia, Alamia is like sort of just a one, like a one story little uh, cinder block building where shepherds would have stayed on the land or looked after the land. And so we found this place and it is kind of amazing. Like I got to do the first, for the first time, Francesco had done it the year before. We've owned the property for a couple of years, but we did the first, my first pressing of the olives. Wow. And it is magical. Like there is stuff about that. And even people like our age, so people in their forties and fifties, Francesco's 40, I'm a bit older. All of these young people, they all have country houses. They all deal with the olive harvest. Mm. They all look after the trees. And, you know, but there's also pomegranate trees wild everywhere and almond trees wild everywhere and pear trees and fig trees. So you don't really own any of it, right? You, It is very much, you are kind of looked at as a, you know, a steward of the land and you do your best. And right now in Puglia, we're dealing with the olive fly, which is devastating. So a lot of the trees 
are being decimated by this um, mm. fly. Ours are kind of okay. And, and Francesco, he's the one that he loves that. He deals with it. It's hard for him because we've been here for six months and it's hard to take care of your land the way you should when you're so far away, but we're doing yeah. our best. Wow. I hate hearing about things like that, about because I'm a beekeeper and, you know, there are, oh, certain, wow. yeah, there are certain mites yeah. and things that get in the hives and there's just, yeah, it makes me so sad to think about these really yeah. important parts of our ecosystem suffering because of changes to the climate and the environment. Have you been to Puglia? Do you know the region where we are? I've been to Puglia, but not where you are. Yeah. I've been sort of near Matera, yeah. like further so down. So Matera and Altamura, they're like really close to each other. Oh, wow. Okay. So we have our, that's where our cooking studio is. That's 10 minutes from Matera. Really? And then our house house is like an hour and a half down. So yeah, okay. we've been super close to us. Super yeah. close. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah. region. Matera blew my mind. Yeah. Just yeah. incredible. I walked around there like I was in this daze, just looking at everything. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'd love to get back there really soon though. How do you think, you know, you spend a week with people when you do it in person, your cooking classes, mm -hmm. do you see people mm -hmm. transforming? Like, do you see them, you know, realizing? Oh God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's kind yeah. of, you're like a psychologist <laughs> chef. I just, I find it really amazing. Like, I mean, there's a few things at play. Like, it's an interesting thing that most of the people that come are women. Mm. Most of the women that come are women in their 40s or 50s. Most of the women in their 40s and 50s that are coming are looking for some sort of, not a transformation, but they're they're willing to try. They're They're so courageous, these women. They're so brave. They, you know, they go to this place that they don't know anything about with people, you know, that they've seen a couple of nice pictures on Instagram and they plunk down their $5,000 and they get on a plane and they go like, yeah, it's brave, you know, is, and I yeah. just, and they come and, and some of them are, you know, ready for the change and some of them a little bit less. So, I mean, there's one woman in particular that I remember um, coming the very first workshop, that workshop that I met Francesco in 2014 and she was from the States and she worked in nonprofit and her father had died and she'd broken up with her husband. And it was hard. Those The first five days for her, she packed the wrong footwear and she kind of had only these dresses. And we were in Matera and we were working on frescoes. And yeah, she struggled. And you know what? By the end of the workshop, she had made up her mind. She went back to the States. She sold everything. She lives in Assisi. You know, she's, I mean, wow. she's really the extreme example and she is happy and she is lovely and you do see really amazing transformation for people. And it's a gift to be able to witness it. It's such a gift to be able to sort of say like, you know, how are you doing today? Like, do you need anything? Mm. Can I get you another coffee? And then for people to tell you like this time where I'm able to step outside of my day to day where I'm able to unravel some knots in my life that I haven't been able to unravel because I'm in the middle of it all the time, that I have the time and the space. And also, I mean, you know, like I have had people sort of say like, wow, like you met Francesco, you left a marriage, you transformed a life and you seem like you're doing what you really want to do. Like I can do that. Yeah. I can not keep living the same life that I've been living because everyone expects me to live that life and and I'm financially secure and I'm going to wake up at 70 and regret it all. Like, I mean, 
it's a big leap of faith and not everyone does it. Some people are there simply for the holiday, but you'd be surprised at how many people are there Mm. to look at what they want to do with their actual, the rest of their life. Yeah. I'm not surprised though. I think often you need to be outside of your daily grind to realize because we get very ingrained in the routine and then it's Mm -hmm. easy to just forget yourself in that whole process. And then when you're out of it, you're like, oh my gosh, there's all these things in the world that I really could access through more freedom. When you were in Napoli and Mm. when you were in uh, Istanbul, did you understand it then or did it take you the time for when you went back to Australia and you you kind of settled and that's when the lessons were like, oh, wow, here's what's going on? I think a little bit. So I moved to Paris when I was 18 Mm -hmm. and had a big relationship with a French man and everything and then that crumbled when I was 24. So I did that whole thing quite young. Hmm. I did my master's in Paris and then I worked in a branding agency doing sort of strategic planning and then as Hmm. the relationship was on the rocks that's when I went to Istanbul and I was like Hmm. oh my goodness like I'm gonna go over here now and then I just went with a suitcase and I had like 500 euros a thousand euros max wow yeah yeah and I just set myself up there on my own and like grieved and learned how to make jewelry Mm -hmm. so I think you know, all of the places I've lived have been kind of representative of a different stage in my life. I came back Mm -hmm. similar to you. My dad had leukemia. um, Well, Mm. he still does, except that it's Mm -hmm. sort of under control now. So part of the reason I came back to Australia, well, the whole reason I came back was for that. And then the pandemic happened. So I didn't really plan what I'm doing now. Right. Yeah. Life just happened and that's fine. Right. We'll see what happens in the future. Who knows? I'm only 32. But yeah, I think... When I was in the thick of it over there, I think I realised what I was learning, but then obviously having the context of, you know, my country of origin Mm -hmm. helped me put all of that into perspective, like the different things I'd been exposed to and the different mentalities and ways of living. It's hard, though, to implement that when you've seen stuff. Like I lived a pretty crazy life in Istanbul working with all the artisans speaking Turkish in the Grand Bazaar, so it's pretty unusual for a an Australian woman to have lived that. So, but then, you know, translating that to my daily life here is a lot of it is just about me cultivating what I learned in my own mm-hmm. life here, mm-hmm. because obviously mm-hmm. I don't find that around me here. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's, but it's, it's still, a, but it's still in there and definitely. it's like waiting for that next sort of phase of wherever it is you end up being mm-hmm. like, it's just, it's part of the, yeah, yeah part of the DNA now. It's like, like a, you know, you weave your own Like, it's probably going to sound very cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like, your own tapestry in a way, you know, all the different fibres. And you're so unique in that respect. And I think probably it's part of life, just creating your own tapestry. And that that will involve grief and, you know, nostalgia Mm -hmm. and and all the other, you know, uncomfortable emotions. Like, coming back to Australia for me was very bittersweet. Like, it was great to be with my family. But then I was like, wow, that whole exploration time feels for the moment kind of over but then you know as my psych would say she would say but it's not over because it's no. you create it in your own mind you don't have to see that as a, as a regressive no and it's allowing it to sort of have its place in time like yeah and because you, you can't keep moving forward no. like you know you need to take the moment back after you keep moving forward and, and definitely and, and allow that to sort of settle and figure out what the right next thing is to do based on free will and not all of these things and I know everyone feels like I didn't know how long my mom would last for. And, you know, it was six months. And it's, you know, my mom had stomach cancer, so it was, you know, really tough Mm. every day to watch it. But I know 
you know, and I'm, I'm older than you. I'm 20 years older than you. I'm 51. And so a lot of these lessons that I'm learning are like in a very different stage. But I think the, the lessons are kind of the same in that, you know, stuff happens, do the best you can with it, process it. And then yeah. the next lesson, if you're paying attention, if you're listening, the next lesson presents itself. Yep. The next right thing. Exactly. You just have you to be le- lead open. with the heart. You're going to, yeah, you're going to be always lead with the heart if you can. So. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a really good note to leave it on, to lead with the heart. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you could join us. For anyone listening to this, mm-hmm. your website, if you can just let us know how to find you, because I'm sure that people will be salivating to find you right now. So it's everyoneatthetable.com. And that lists all of the online stuff we're doing right now, which uh, there's something every week. Also, the in-person ones. We've got a few things up for 2021 because mm. we are eternal optimists. And we are sure <laughs> that by uh, the fall, somebody's going to be able to come. So everyone at the table, or if you want to email us, it's choweat at gmail.com. Choweat at gmail.com. Great. Thank you so much for your time and say nice ciao to, to Francesco for us. I will. Okay. And, and we'll see you. We'll see Ci you vediamo there. A Puglia. Ci vediamo. Okay, sì. Ci vediamo lì. Sì, sì. Ciao. Ciao. Grazie. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Julie on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. For more information on Julie, follow her on Instagram at everyone at the table and be sure to check out everyone at the table online at everyoneatthetable.com. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fecho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. On a seal of the Akkadian Empire, there is the image of a woman carrying six spears. On her head is a horned helmet and she tramples a leashed line underfoot. She is the goddess Inanna, deity of love, beauty, justice, and war. It is said that she wished for a throne and took a willow tree from the banks of the Euphrates River, planting it in her own garden and planning to carve her seat from its wood. Until next time, stay curious.